Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 34 of True Blue True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. I feel like the end of year has really got us both this week, but we're here and we're ready. Yeah, and it's catching up though. I can feel it. Yeah, and I didn't bring any snacks this time, which I feel like it was a real kicker last week. Really got us going. It did, yeah. I thought you might back it up. No, but cupcakeless. No. Uh, we have some more Patreon supporters this week, Chloe. We do. Thank you and welcome to Lucas Jenner, Sarah Bowley and Lisa Glassborough. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Today we're talking about the case of Kevin Barlow and Brian Chambers, an international drug smuggling case in the early 1980s. It had a big impact in Australia and abroad at the time, and we'll see why, but it was later overshadowed by other unrelated crimes in the same year and other similar more notorious crimes in the years thereafter. Some will know it, some won't, but we got some positive feedback on the Pong Su episode we did close, so we thought we'd do something along those lines again. And we're heading over to Malaysia to begin this tale, to Penang's International Airport, where one young man in particular was sweating bullets. But it wasn't a fiery rendang curry causing this. It was the contents of his suitcase. Ninth of November, nineteen eighty-three, Bayan Lepas International Airport, Penang. Malaysia. There was the usual bustle of activity inside and outside the airport, with a seemingly innumerable fleet of taxis dropping people off and picking up fares. The relentless cluster of passengers travelling to and from domestic and international flights flooded the airport lounges and check-in counters. Amongst all of the airport activity, two young Australian men aged in their mid-twenties alighted from one of the many taxis and entered the airport. One man was carrying a maroon suitcase. He was named Kevin Barlow, and his acquaintance was Brian Chambers. Barlow approached the check-in desk as Chambers paid the taxi fare 
passed through the luggage screening area and joined him there. Barlow was sweating and shaking profusely, which drew unwanted attention to him and Chambers. As a consequence, the two were detained and searched by local authorities, where they discovered the maroon suitcase contained 141.9 grams of heroin. How did these two men end up in this dire situation, almost 5,000 kilometres from their homes in Perth, Australia, especially with Malaysia's new highly advertised harsh drug laws at the time, which promised death for the crime they were committing? To answer this question, we have to go back in time to Trieste, Italy, during the end of World War II, where a man named John Ashia was born. John Ashia learned at a very young age to fend for himself. He was abandoned by his father as a child, and for the first 10 years of his life he lived in Malta, spending much of his time on the streets as a procurer, colloquially known as a pimp, soliciting for sex worker arrangements for sailors during their visits to the country. Authorities were soon on to his activities and the many Maltese laws he was breaking at the time. His punishment was in the form of being expelled from the country. They sent him packing to Australia, Fremantle specifically, in Western Australia. For his first four years in Australia, Aisha spent time in a Christian brother's school. He was expelled, however, after splitting a fellow student's head open following an argument. He was then moved to another boy's home in Perth. Aisha never seemed to make any effort to get on the straight and narrow, instead opting for criminality. He soon became a prisoner of Her Majesty, moving around the country and spending time in jail in both Tasmania and Victoria. Ashia's criminal career ascended when he began learning the trade of drug dealing under Sydney Vice King Joseph Borg. Borg owned a brothel empire as well in Sydney. Ashia resided here until the late 1960s and was one of Borg's bodyguards. In 1968, Borg was killed His car was fitted with a car bomb and exploded in Bondi, a famous coastal suburb of Sydney. Ashioni's fellow bodyguards left Sydney in fear for their lives. Unfortunately for the people of Perth, Ashia decided to move back there. His crimes soon escalated in cruelty and viciousness. First, he was arrested and imprisoned for breaking and entering. Then, at the end of 1971, he was jailed again after being released from Fremantle Prison, this time convicted of kidnapping a 15-year-old girl. Upon his release, Aisha moved back to the remote opal mining town of Cooper Pedy in South Australia. If you remember from a previous episode, this is where James Gargasoulis, the Burke Street mass murderer, grew up. Aisha began running a pimping business in Cooper Pedy too, and he soon married a woman there after only knowing her for a few days. Only a few years later, by 1975, he was imprisoned again for brutally assaulting his wife. Upon release, Ashia moved back to Perth and got into business with a criminal named Paul Musari. Musari was a chronic gambler who fuelled his addiction by any means necessary, 
such as drug dealing and car theft. Mushari was known by drug users and dealers alike at the time as Perth's heroin kingpin. Asia soon worked alongside him, like a right-hand man. The next person down the chain of command was a man named Brian Chambers, who we mentioned in the introduction. He was Asia and Musari's top drug courier. Chambers would certainly become the most well-known of these three criminals in the years that followed. None of the three men could have anticipated the media attention and violent justice brought upon Chambers from a drug courier mission that began in 1983. Brian Jeffrey Shergold Chambers, also known as just Jeff, was born in the mid-1950s in Perth, Australia. His known criminal career of drug trafficking began in 1980 when he imported drugs to Australia using body packing techniques, which is a roundabout way of saying he stored them in his anal cavity, or as Russell Brand calls it, God's internal wallet. And he'd later pass the drugs and clean them up after making it through customs. In 1981, Chambers was in transit in Singapore with drugs concealed in his body, but he had two vials of heroin for personal use, apparently, in the pocket of his jacket. Chambers was released after bribing customs officers, which was very lucky. This probably wouldn't happen in Singapore nowadays, a bribe far less likely to be accepted and prosecution far more likely. After this close call in Singapore and with the desire to leave his criminal associates in Perth, Chambers decided to start afresh with his girlfriend. The pair escaped Perth's organised crime scene, bound for the east coast of Australia, for Melbourne. While the two were in South Australia, near a town called Penong, they were involved in a serious car accident. Chambers was drink driving. His girlfriend Susan Jacobson suffered life-threatening injuries and was in a coma for several days, before dying on the 20th of May 1983. Chambers was fortunate to receive only minor injuries. For some strange reason, though, this incident seemed to fuel a desire to go back to the criminal world he'd known so well. Between the beginning of 1981 until the end of 1983, Chambers made at least a dozen international trips, smuggling drugs back to Australia, teaming up with Ashia and Muzari. In 1983, Ashia had a ripping smuggling job lined up, perfect for the experienced Chambers. This would be a two-man job, however, with a man known to Ashia named Kevin John Barlow. Kevin John Barlow was born in Stoke-on-Trent in England before moving to Australia with his family and residing in Perth. In 1983, at around the age of 25, he was boarding in a house in Perth. His landlord was a woman by the name of Debbie Collier-Long. Barlow, around this time, was depressed and abusing alcohol and smoking marijuana, He was described as being a drifter with a default scowl on his face. He was on workers' compensation after a workplace injury. He worked as a welder on construction sites for a time, but really he had few skill sets and even fewer prospects for work. He was also being threatened with having his car repossessed. John Ashia was dating Debbie Collier Long, Barlow's landlord, and Ashia soon learned about him, how he was down on his luck, needing a win and some cash. So he offered Barlow a job and some much-needed financial relief by being a drug runner with the experienced Chambers. Barlow and Ashia spoke in detail about the drug run in Collier Long's house, for which he was to be paid somewhere in the vicinity of $10,000, I recall. Trevor Lawson, who was Collier Long's brother-in-law, was also present during many of these conversations while visiting, 
and he learnt of the details and reported it to the National Crime Authority. They would later tip off Malaysian authorities, it was reported, which is said to be a no-no in policing circles when the country at the other end has capital punishment for offences of this nature. Soon, Chambers met up with Barlow in Perth to scope him out and to approve him for the job, which he did. Barlow felt at ease with Chambers' confidence and experience in the task, and soon he was commissioned by Chambers and Arshia to take part in the operation. To give you an idea to how the world was reacting and addressing drug use and trafficking at the time, not just in Malaysia, we'll mention how the US seemingly started the trend, at least in the Western world, in the 1980s. Ronald Reagan, during his presidency, declared a war on drugs. This was a key initiative of his administration, led by he and his wife, First Lady Nancy Reagan, with the campaign starting in October of 1982. Reagan was amping up an initiative first introduced by former disgraced President Richard Nixon. Reagan's very public slogan was to make America great again, which President Donald Trump would plagiarise years later in his own presidency. Laws against the drug trade that were signed off by the Reagans were very tough against even minor drug infractions, leading to very serious jail time. But the consequences were not nearly as heavy compared to Malaysia's mandatory death sentences. In their fateful operation, Chambers, on instruction from Musari, travelled to Malaysia in early 1983 to meet another courier to pick up two kilograms of heroin. Following Musari's instructions, Chambers stole 179 grams of the heroin from that batch and buried it on a Malaysian beach. Ashia and Musari instructed Chambers, six months later, to dig up the package and smuggle it back to Australia. This is where Barlow would now be involved. In October 1983, Barlow travelled to Singapore, directly from Perth, to meet Chambers there. Chambers caught a different flight via Sydney to Singapore to make it look like they weren't connected. Despite being under the strict instructions of their criminal bosses to travel separately while in Singapore following their meeting, the two men disobeyed these directives by travelling together around Singapore, sightseeing and staying in the same hotel. From Singapore, Barlow and Chambers travelled by train to Penang in Malaysia. The package of drugs the men were to retrieve was on a Penang beach. Chambers had the directions to where the package was and dug it up. Barlow was present for this, but reportedly didn't know the location of the heroin. The initial planned method of smuggling the drugs was to conceal them in their respective anal cavities and by swallowing them, as Chambers had done several times before. However, Barlow refused to do this due to his distaste for the method and secondly, due to health concerns in relation to the dangers of swallowing the drugs. This is despite Barlow actually using the drugs allegedly in the days beforehand. Chambers gave in, the heroin was wrapped in newspaper and plastic bags, the two men then purchased a maroon suitcase to hide the drugs in and made their way to the Bayan La Paz airport. 
It was reported that as soon as the drugs were collected by the two men, Barlow became very nervous. The holidaying, sightseeing and relaxation was over. Now it was down to brass tacks, smuggling the drugs out of Malaysia back to Australia. Barlow was sweating bullets pretty much as soon as he and Chambers entered the Bayan Lepus airport. An attentive policeman noticed Barlow's suspicious behaviour as he and Chambers were attempting to check in at the first-class counter of Malaysian Airlines to board a flight from Kuala Lumpur, connecting to Sydney, then back home, finally to Perth, Australia. Barlow and Chambers were taken to an interview room and asked to open their suitcases for inspection. Chambers diligently opened his bags and cases, but Barlow did not open the maroon suitcase he carried, telling authorities it was actually Chambers' case and that he couldn't open it. Chambers unlocked the suitcase using its combination. The bags of heroin were easily found as Barlow, Chambers and their bags were meticulously searched. But Chambers denied knowing anything about the packages. The two men were handcuffed. Both were reported to be shivering terribly, surrounded as they left the airport probably due to the damning public posters promising death to drug smugglers. Their new unwanted home would be Penang Prison, shortly after their arrest. They'd spend the whole of 1984 and most of 1985 in this prison while awaiting their trial. Bruce Dover, a journalist for the Herald Sun, recalled meeting Barlow and Chambers when they were inmates at the prison. It was originally built to accommodate 350 prisoners, But by November 1983, when Barlow and Chambers were first arrested, it held over 2,000 prisoners, including female prisoners and their babies. Despite the overcrowding and dire prison conditions, Dover described Barlow and Chambers as being in good spirits when he visited them. This, in part, was due to the fact that they were allowed to reside in the same cell, consume Western food, and were allowed time to exercise in the sunlight within the prison walls possibly being given more perks than other prisoners with their highest celebrity status. Dover elaborated that both men, initially, were of the strong opinion that it was only a matter of time before things would be sorted, bribes paid, and they'd be deported back to Australia. Barlow and Chambers were reportedly so confident that they'd be able to work out a deal and return home that they promised each other they wouldn't involve their families. However, there are conflicting statements on what was reported by Dover on prison conditions, with other reports stating Barlow and Chambers were in a shared cell, two by three metres, with three other prisoners, for 22 hours a day. Chambers was reportedly a well-liked prisoner, but Barlow, increasingly distressed at his incarceration and impending trial, was described as finding it very hard to adjust and he was categorised by some inmates as being a lunatic who was cracking up. Barlow would soon make claims that he took the fateful trip under duress, and that his girlfriend in Australia would break up with him if he didn't. As we mentioned at the start of this episode, Barlow and Chambers picked the worst time possible in Malaysia's legal history to smuggle drugs out of the country. Dover described Malaysia's harsh new drug penalties at the time being in response to a blossoming and insidious drug trade taking hold of the country. And so, the law was decreed at the time that anyone in possession of a banned narcotic with a minimum weight of 15 grams would be given a mandatory death sentence. Barlow and Chambers were officially caught with 141.9 grams of heroin. The advertisements around the country for the new drug laws in the 1980s were not subtle. 
One photo of such an advertisement, which was taken from the external wall of a prison at the time, read, Death. That's the mandatory sentence for any data, meaning drug trafficker, in Malaysia. So be forewarned. We'll post a picture of this on our social media for you all to see. On July the 17th, 1985, Barlow and Chambers' trials began. Rasaya Rajasingham was a local lawyer who initially was employed as defence counsel for both Barlow and Chambers. However, when he reviewed all the evidence against the men since their arrest, he thought he could only save one of them from certain death. So Rajasingham defended Chambers. The trial began 18 months after the two men's arrests. During this time of incarceration, along with now having two separate attorneys, there was a strong divide between the two men. Dover had observed a stark change to their initial optimism in court proceedings as Barlow and Chambers barely spoke to one another and no longer looked at each other in the eye. Chambers remained handcuffed throughout the whole trial, but Barlow wasn't, as he needed crutches to walk due to a chronic groin injury. A blame game between the two men ensued throughout the trial. Chambers stated at one point that Barlow had tried to bribe a police officer at the airport when their drugs were discovered. Supporters for Barlow and Chambers, in their friends and family, were in the court gallery watching on through the trial. They could no longer be kept out of it as Barlow and Chambers had originally wanted, with the two men soon realising the gravity of their situation. Karpal Singh was Barlow's lawyer. As well as being a lawyer, he was described as being a charismatic political opposition figure. Barlow and Chambers would soon go on to betray one another in court, each downplaying their own involvement in the drug run and blaming the other person. Barlow and Chambers' families and friends were divided too, and they were in opposition to one another, both agitated that the opposing defendant didn't fess up so their loved one or friend could leave Malaysia and return to Australia as a free man. The judge assigned to the trial did not suffer fools, however, and Barlow and Chambers, implicating each other, were inadvertently sending one another to an early grave. The findings of the judge throughout the trial were that Barlow and Chambers had arrived, stayed and were leaving together with an amount of illicit narcotics which were jointly possessed, in the aim to traffic the said narcotics. The trial ended on the 24th of July. Barlow and Chambers were both found guilty. Sentencing would be given by the judge the following week, so the lawyers of both men could prepare appeals. There were also submissions on behalf of Barlow that he should be deported back to Australia immediately so he could have an operation on his leg. While Barlow and Chambers were on trial for their lives in front of a growing mob of media representatives, a mother and son from New Zealand were arrested at the same airport in 1985. This mother and son were trying to leave Malaysia with heroin smuggled in their underwear, seemingly oblivious and overconfident as Barlow and Chambers had been. Their names were Lorraine and Aaron Cohen. We'll discuss the Cohens a little later, as the outcome of their trial and punishment was very different to that of Barlow and Chambers. On the 1st of August 1985, the verdict was reached for Barlow and Chambers. The trial lasted around a fortnight. The two men were found guilty of drug possession and trafficking charges and were sentenced to death by hanging. An Australian reporter, one of many at the trial, caught up with Chambers and Barlow as they were led out of the courthouse, pointing his microphone into Chambers' face with a loud, aggressive question. How does it feel, Jeff? How does it feel? To which Chambers replied, How do you think it fucking feels, you idiot? 
For the next 12 months, Barlow and Chambers and their respective attorneys tried vigorously to appeal their convictions. High-ranking Australian political figures, such as Foreign Minister at the time, Bill Hayden, gave passionate appeals for a stay of execution for the two men, as did then-Prime Minister, the late Bob Hawke. The families of Barlow and Chambers, despite their resentment for one another initially, eventually did work together to try and help both men. Barbara Barlow and Sue Chambers pleaded for their son's lives to the King of Malaysia. Despite their many pleas to these high-ranking figures, the verdict was upheld and Barlow and Chambers were sentenced to death. Here is archived audio from Channel 7 News interviewing the mothers of Barlow and Chambers at the time as they appealed for a stay of execution. Mrs Barlow and Mrs Chambers met for the first time yesterday. That was in Pudu Prison. Despite obvious pressures on the two women, they agreed today to speak together about the problems they've faced individually over the past two and a half years. Although both Barlow and Chambers have accused each other of responsibility for the crime, each mother says they do not hold a grudge for the other. I feel absolutely no animosity whatsoever towards Sue. We're we're ten mothers in the same position. We love our sons. We want to see mercy and justice done. Kevin Barlow's defence lawyer, Karpal Singh, was due to arrive from Penang this morning. However, the Penang governor said he wanted to inform him personally today of his decision on the plea for a stay of execution. Karpal should arrive in Kuala Lumpur tomorrow. Mrs Barlow will gain more emotional support tonight. Another son, Chris, will arrive from Adelaide. After talking to Channel 7, both Mrs Barlow and Mrs Chambers returned to Pudu Prison for brief visits. From Pudu Prison, Mrs Barlow came here to the Australian High Commission office in Kuala Lumpur to make final arrangements for the disposal of Kevin's body. He's already indicated that he wants to be cremated and his ashes left here as a reminder and warning to would-be drug traffickers. Steve Woodham in Kuala Lumpur for 7 National News. On the 6th of July 1986, the Barlow and Chambers families said their final goodbyes to the condemned men. The press took photos of the devastated and exhausted family members leaving the prison gates, knowing their loved ones would be executed at dawn. The family members were granted some final visits. Barlow's mother Barbara, in the time leading up to her son's execution, smuggled in a cocktail of drugs she'd prepared back at her hotel room a bunch of crushed up sleeping pills as I understand, she successfully smuggled this into his cell and she was going to give it to him so he could end his own life and to spare him from being hung, but she couldn't go through with the plan while still clinging on to hopes of a last minute pardon. Public sentiment in Australia was divided in relation to the ethics and effectiveness of capital punishment. The death penalty in Australia was officially abolished in all states by 1985 a year before Barlow and Chambers were executed. The last person to be legally executed in Australia was well before 1985. His name was Ronald Ryan and he was hanged on the 3rd of February 1967. Ryan's case in itself was quite controversial in terms of his guilt for the crime he was convicted that led to his execution and also that there was a lot of public protests about his hanging. In the same year that Barlow and Chambers were to be executed, Five criminals in Sydney were facing life sentences, charged with the vicious rape and murder of nurse Anita Cobby. This extremely high-profile trial brought a lot of public interest, sympathy for Anita and anger at the five perpetrators. Many members of the public were screaming for capital punishment on these five criminals at the time. In contrast, Barlow and Chambers were given a lot of support in Australia and sympathy, 
with much of the nation finding their hangings to be cruel and disproportionate punishment in relation to the crime. We mentioned earlier about the support of Australian politicians right up to Prime Minister Hawke, but there was also support from other international political figures too. Then Prime Minister of England, Margaret Thatcher, also offered her support, as Barlow was an expatriate of England. Not all politicians supported the pair, however. John Howard notably condemned their actions. High-profile Australian lawyers, such as Frank Galbally, even weighed in, which ultimately just served to piss off Malaysian authorities more so, I think. On the 7th of July, 1986, at dawn, Barlow and Chambers were hanged in Pudu Prison, Malaysia, at 6.08, my heart skipped a beat. I knew it was over, reflected Barbara Barlow later, saying she could feel her son's moment of death. The numerous media outlets who had been televising the whole trial of Barlow and Chambers flocked outside the Pudu prison in the early hours of the morning, with bated breath, waiting, desperate for photos and proof that the men had been executed. At 6.50am, a prison goods truck slowly drove through the main prison gates. With it, the proof the public was waiting for. Proof of Malaysia's justice being carried out against the two men who were in the van, their bodies tagged and feet exposed for the press to snap shots at. Dover thought back to the moment Barlow and Chambers had been executed and about the two men he'd gotten to know since their arrest. Barlow and Chambers were not evil men, he said. Stupid, naive, greedy, but capable and perhaps deserving of redemption and a second chance. Kevin Barlow was 28 years old when he died. He was cremated a few hours after his death with his grieving family present. Brian Chambers was 29 years old. His body was prepared and repatriated back to Australia in the company of his relatives. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The execution of Barlow and Chambers in 1986 certainly did shock the Australian nation and severed smooth-running relations between the two countries, as Bob Hawke described the actions of the hangings as barbaric. In 1988, there was a television movie adaptation of Barlow and Chambers' trial and conviction called Dada is Death, also called A Long Way From Home in some releases. The film starred Hugo Weaving as Chambers, John Paulson as Barlow, amongst other well-known actors such as Sarah Jessica Parker and Julie Christie. The film portrays Barlow and Chambers somewhat more innocently and different to the way they were by reports in real life. For instance, there's a scene depicting when Chambers and his girlfriend were driving in South Australia that we mentioned earlier, and in the film the car crash occurs as he is staring at her and the two kiss but it failed to represent the fact that he was driving while intoxicated. 
Also in the film, Barlow and Chambers became better friends and cared for each other during their incarceration, where, in reality, as we mentioned, their trial divided them as they chose to implicate each other as the guilty party. We also wanted to mention Barbara Barlow, who very publicly fought the Malaysian justice system to try and save her son and who made several media appearances during the trial. She also wrote a book the same year as the film called A Long Way From Home, A Mother's Story. In 1989, New Zealand-based journalist David Williams published a book about the failed drug run and capital punishment of Barlow and Chambers called This Little Piggy Stayed Home. Barlow, Chambers and the Mafia. After the book's initial release, the book was never printed again, despite many consumers wanting the purchase. This was out of fear from the publisher Panorama Books that they could be sued. Coming back to the trial and convictions of the Coens, the New Zealand mother and son we mentioned earlier, who smuggled heroin in their underwear. In 1987, the two were convicted Lorraine was sentenced to death and her son Anthony was sentenced to life imprisonment and corporal punishment by being whipped with a cane six times. Like Barlow and Chambers, the mother and son's case was very high profile in their home country of New Zealand. It was also relatively high profile in Australia. Lorraine and Anthony tried to leave Penang with a grand total of 140 grams of heroin in their respective underwear items. She was 42 in 1985 and Anthony was just 18. Unlike Barlow and Chambers, Lorraine would have luck on her side and the appeal would quash her execution sentence and she was sentenced to life in prison. The judge listening to the appeal accepted that the heroin Lorraine and her son were trying to take out of Malaysia was for her own personal use. Lorraine was a heavy drug user. Lorraine suffered from breast cancer in prison but recovered In 1996, after three attempts to be pardoned, Lorraine and Anthony were pardoned and they were paroled and deported back to New Zealand. But what about John Ashia and Paul Musari, you might be asking? The head honchos who these harsh sentences generally fail to capture, instead nabbing the small-time mules. Following Barlow and Chambers' executions, Ashia was eventually charged and convicted in 1988 in Australia for conspiring with the two late men to traffic heroin from the country of Malaysia. Ashia's criminal business partner Musari was imprisoned over the earlier package, but not for the heroin that Barlow and Chambers tried to get out of Malaysia on that fateful day. Of his prison life, Ashia was described by prison officials as being an angry and difficult inmate. Difficult, as in he went on frequent hunger strikes, and protested very publicly that jail conditions were brutal and degrading, angry in the form of frequently attacking prison officers and being involved in the infamous 1988 Fremantle prison riot. Five officers were held hostage during the riot, where prisoners attempted diversionary tactics to orchestrate an escape. The riot was meticulously planned over time as prisoners stole about three litres of petrol from prison lawnmowers to fuel a fire which would cause the cells to reach temperatures of over 52 degrees Celsius, which is around about 125 degrees Fahrenheit. There was a woman who watched Aisha at one of his many trials and built a connection with him. The two fell in love and got married. This may have contributed to Aisha finally, maybe for the first time in his life, going on the straight and narrow and becoming a law-abiding citizen, sort of. When Aisha was eventually released from prison in 1997, 
and in the years following up until his death, he was described as rarely troubling police. So he wasn't squeaky clean in the way he lived his life, but as clean as he would ever be. He died of natural causes in early 2010, a free man at the age of 63. As of September this year, ABC News has reported that the Malaysian government is changing its stance on the country's drug issues. The death penalty will remain enforced for drug traffickers. However, the government is looking to decriminalise drug use. Malaysia has been described as having some of the harshest drug penalties in the world, and the shift by the Malaysian government is to now support drug users to get clean, and it comes from many different social issues in that country. Over the years since Barlow and Chambers' execution, Australians have been in the news for drug smuggling overseas with highly publicised trials. Some of these people have been fortunate and have been deported and able to resume their life in Australia, while others, right now, are serving life sentences or facing capital punishment. In 2005, a Vietnamese Australian named Van Tuong Nguyen was executed in Singapore when caught at Changi Airport trying to smuggle drugs out of the country to help his family settle some overwhelming debt. Justice in Singapore was, and is, swift and firm, and he was executed only a year or so after his arrest. Chappelle Corby is another Australian many of us know by her highly publicised trial in 2004 for allegedly smuggling a boogie board full of marijuana in Bali. Also, the Bali Nine. Five are serving life sentences in prison, one is back in Australia and one died from an illness while in prison. The two ringleaders, Andrew Chan and Mayuran Sukumaran, were executed. This caused bad international relations at the time between Indonesia and Australia, with then Prime Minister Tony Abbott publicly shaming the execution of the two ringleaders who had, by all media accounts, tried hard to reform themselves. Prior to Barlow and Chambers' arrest, the only people executed in Malaysia under the new laws were from the country's Chinese minority. They were the first Westerners. And it's worth noting that an Australian was arrested before Barlow and Chambers ever were, but his death sentence was commuted and he was deported back to Australia. But that's the case of Barlow and Chambers, Chloe. Maybe not the best guys who ever walked the face of the earth, but did they deserve death? Your thoughts? Yeah, well, bringing drugs into a country and facilitating the use of them, which is ultimately what was going to happen here, is not great. And it has an insidious effect on society. I can't really answer the question of did they deserve death because how do you decide something like that? I've often thought that I'm glad that we live in a country where capital punishment is illegal because the moral and ethical implications and debates around it honestly stun me a little. There are reasons why ethics professors spend their whole lives writing a dissertation and never finish it. It's often an unanswerable question. Obviously, there are people that do things to others that means they should never be out in society, but I don't know if the answer's death. I really just don't know. What these men went through and their families was obviously pretty harrowing. It's an interesting insight to a legal system that is pretty different from our own as well. My last thoughts on this is that I hope their families and loved ones got some closure and were able to move on with their lives untarnished. Family members can often be tarred with the same brush when they actually had nothing to do with the crime. I've read stories about children of serial killers and how that fundamentally changed their lives and people's opinion of them, but that's a whole other discussion and probably a podcast in itself. Um, That's pretty much my thoughts on this. Yours? 
Well, it's hard to not get into a debate about the death penalty when you talk about these cases. Every podcaster seems to try and avoid it, and obviously we don't have it here in Australia, as you said, Chloe. Whatever the case, what gets me is the ignorance these traffickers have when they undertake the smuggling. We know from the Pong Su episode that not all of them are necessarily evil people. Sometimes their circumstances and duress play a part in their actions. But to smuggle drugs into a country where you know death is the penalty, it's just crazy to me. Not saying I agree with the result at all, uh, but blaming the Malaysian government for it seems rich when they've been fairly open in their advertising of it. It's almost like victim blaming in the sense that it doesn't matter what someone was doing or wearing, they shouldn't be murdered. You know, it's the killer's fault, not the victim or the friend who didn't offer them a lift or the partner who had an argument with them, whatever. You know, Malaysia declared death for drug traffickers. They turned around and trafficked drugs in the face of that. So it, it's mighty arrogant and stupid. Do I agree with their executions? No. But uh, what did they expect? You know, they're idiots for doing it because the result was plain for all to see. Chambers in particular sounds to me like he thought he could bribe his way out of it and help from the higher ups in Australia just simply didn't come. I think Barlow saw cash, cash he didn't have, and jumped at the chance. And when it came crunch time, he got mighty nervous and Chambers was essentially babysitting him. And that's why Barlow didn't have the code to the combination lock. You know, plans changed, I think, from whatever they'd initially had planned. And with that loss of control comes a loss of confidence. And Chambers couldn't bribe his way out of this one. So I do feel sorry for them to some extent. I feel mostly sorry for their families for the turmoil and fighting and suffering that they all had to endure at the time and afterwards. So. That's yeah, my thoughts. I agree. Um, so let's move on to our happy thoughts. Do you want to go first? No, is you it, go uh, first because yours is a bit more epic here. And <laughs> it is. So I watched an episode of Australian Story a few days ago on a guy named Ganim Al-Shanin who was the most positive, amazing person I've ever seen on TV. Uh, that's a bold claim but I'm going to stick to it. He got surgery for mechanical limbs after losing both his arms in a workplace incident. He'd only been in Australia for a few years after fleeing Iraq as a refugee and spending time in detention in Nauru. He had to leave his family in Iraq to come here and ended up on a visa that meant they couldn't also be here. They ended up having to go to Switzerland. So this guy was getting treatment for horrific burns from this workplace injury and adjusting to life without arms because they were amputated as a result of the injury. He was also prepping for major surgery to get prosthetics because a surgeon decided that he was eligible to get bionic arms, essentially, all without his family. They were allowed to eventually come and see him on a bridging visa for three months while he had his surgery. This was the first time in six years that he had seen them. And the gratitude and his attitude on the fact that they were there alone was just beyond. And the best reality check. He was just so happy to be alive. And despite all the things he had been through, he said that he couldn't complain about anything. He never felt disabled because he had everything with his family there. The only thing he wanted was the arms fitted so he could hug his sons fully. Like that's mm. the one thing he wished for in life, yeah. despite all those things. And so I guess that's my really long-winded way of saying that my happy thought this week is just that I'm pretty happy with my life and pretty grateful for the people in it and 
just for that reality check, I guess, mm. that even though you can feel tired or stressed or bad things happen, that your attitude can make a difference. And that guy, I'm just so glad I heard his story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you told me about it before we started recording. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. I think gratitude is the big word there. You yeah, know, exactly. something that we, I think by and large, you know, we don't practice enough or, yep. or, or take the time to step back from life mm. and look at that and what we've got. So yeah, that's pretty inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to go on with yours? Not really, because mine... <laughs> Off the back of that, um, I have written down here Scrubs, <laughs> as in Zach Braff's, Zach Braff's TV show from, what, like 20 years ago now. <laughs> so it's, um, it's yeah, it's slightly less inspiring than, than your happy thought. Um, we've just been watching it recently as a bit of a debrief from yeah. whether it's true crime or our other stuff we're working on. So that's... Uh, that's been nice. I think I'm, I've, and I said to you when I wrote that, I feel like I've met, brought Zach Braff up once before. Yeah, but it was in a Netflix movie was we it? both couldn't think of where I misreferenced Roadhouse as being one of those as guys from Kurt the 80s Russell. with a mullet. Kurt and Russell <laughs> did not star in Roadhouse. Patrick Swayze. Yeah, not the same guy. <laughs> they seem very similar. <laughs> <laughs> the similarities end, start and end with the haircut. That's it. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh, yeah, agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Scrubs was my my happy thought, so that's it from, from me. <laughs> that's still a good one, still valid. All happy thoughts are valid, remember? Absolutely. Uh, if you do want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime dash podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, etc. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. A shout out to John for the help with research and writing on this episode. That's it for us this week, Chloe. We'll be back next week for probably our last episode for this year before we take some time off. So yes, thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you next time. See you all then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.